0: My wife has been married to me for 25 years. She is a trooper. And this year I told her, honey, we'll do something special for our anniversary. And so for the next two Sundays I'm going to be gone. I'm going to take her to the beach where she enjoys. And we're going to spend some time there. And so keep us in your prayers, would you? We're going to be celebrating our anniversary And just pray that we'll come back refreshed and excited. And I don't know about her, but I'm ready to sign up for another 25 years. I'm kind of hoping that she will be. At least after the vacation, I'm hoping she will be. (laughs) And so keep us in your prayers. Next Sunday night, uh, we're going to have a night of worship, which will be a special treat. Josh and the worship team will be gearing up for that. Next Sunday morning, Pastor James will be teaching. And then the following Sunday... Randy McCracken will be with us all the way from England to be teaching us. And then that Sunday evening, we'll be hearing from the high schoolers about the mission trip that uh, by that time will be past history. So we'll hear all about it that night. Also, I wanted to uh, say tonight, uh, Brett and Pam Butler, would you guys just wave? Everybody will know Brett and Pam, this is their last night with us. They are moving down to L.A., lower Alabama, and we're going to really miss them, and so uh, as we pray and ask the Lord to bless the Bible study, we'll also, uh, we'll also pray for them. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your love for us, and Father, we pray for bread and Pam. We pray that you'll be with them, that you'll go before them, Lord, that you'll continue to do great things in their lives. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing they've been to our fellowship here. And Father, we thank you for your word and every opportunity we have, Lord, to come and to immerse ourselves in scripture. We know it builds up our faith. It makes us stronger. And so tonight, Lord, we ask that you open our hearts and that you bless us tonight in a special way. Do so by your spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The last verse of Exodus chapter 24 tells us that Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on the summit of a fiery and glory-topped Mount Sinai. In the chapter since, we've learned what happened on that mountaintop. Moses received two items, the commandments of God and a blueprint for the tabernacle. Tonight, though, we'll discover what happened at the base of that mountain, in the camp, during those 40 days, and how Moses reacts when he returns and discovers what's gone on. Chapter 32 begins, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. This infant nation has three problems. And it leads them into idolatry. First, they have a patience problem. Second, they have a faith problem. And third, they have a knowledge problem. Remember, Israel waited 400 years in Egyptian slavery for God to raise up for them a deliverer. Then Moses waited 40 years on the backside of a desert before God was ready to initiate that deliverance. And now the Israelites, now that they've been delivered, they can't even wait 40 days for Moses to consult with God and receive his marching orders. I would say, like many of us, the Israelites had a wait problem. A W-A-I-T problem. They strayed when Moses delayed. And you need to understand that God's plan almost always includes a strategic delay. You've got to be able to handle them. you got to have some patience. You've got to learn to wait on God. I've heard it put this way. The key to everything is patience. You get the chicken by hatching the egg, not by smashing it. If you're in a hurry tonight, If you're so anxious to get started that you're about to leave God behind, then just sit on it, would you? Israel had a weight problem, but Israel also had a faith problem. These Hebrews wanted a leader they could see, someone tangible and visible and out front. But there's a problem, for God is not tangible and God is not visible. God is not tangible, He's spiritual. God is not visible, He's invisible. And so often God is not out in front. Rather, God is behind the scenes doing His work. You know, what's interesting. The impala is an interesting animal. It's a leaper. It can jump 10 foot high and it can cover a distance of 30 feet in a single stride. And yet these animals are displayed in zoos behind 3 foot high stone walls. And the reason that short wall is able to keep this incredible animal enclosed is that an impala will not jump if it can't see where its feet will land. In other words, it has no faith. Guys, we've got to be willing to have faith. We've got to be willing to trust God even when we can't trace Him. And also I want you to notice that these Israelites, they had a knowledge problem. Notice how they excuse their idolatrous desires. They say of Moses, we do not know what has become of him. And if I had been Aaron, I would have looked at him and said, you really don't need to know. One of the biggest reasons people become dissatisfied with God is that they believe he's obligated to keep them in the loop. They think that unless God runs all his initiatives past them, he's really in no position to act. If they don't sign off on God's plan, he shouldn't proceed. Guys, that is sheer arrogance. Israel didn't know what had become of Moses, but God certainly did. Hey, there's a lot about God that we don't know. I hope you know that. And God expects us to trust Him, even if He chooses not to brief us on the subject. Well, instead of patience and humility... In faith, Israel resorts to idolatry. And Aaron responds in verse 2, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt, the infamous golden calf. And so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation, and he said, and this is interesting, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now remember the first commandment that God wrote on the stone tablets was, You shall have no other gods before me. This was obviously a violation of that first commandment. But that may not have been Aaron's intention for notice again in verse 5 he builds this calf and then he proclaims a feast to who to the Lord and the word translated Lord is the word Yahweh or Jehovah it's the covenant name for God among his people Israel this calf in my mind I believe that it actually was a representation of the true God. In Revelation chapter 4 we get a glimpse of God's throne in heaven and around the throne we see angels, living creatures and it's interesting they all have the face of a calf. Aaron may have been trying to draw on that connection. In his mind he was fashioning a graven image of the one true God. Rather than a violation of the first commandment I believe this golden calf Started out at least as a breach of the second commandment you shall have no graven images, you should not employ any graven images in worship. Of course, God considered it all idolatry. In God's eyes, it was all a bunch of bull. Verse 6 Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. Notice the one thing they didn't offer sin offerings. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They were blind to their own sin. Guys, they had swapped a miracle-working God for an impotent idol. It's interesting, just two months earlier, these same people had heard God thunder from Mount Sinai in an audible voice, You shall have no other gods before me. And then again, you shall not make for yourselves a graven image. Hey, never think, if God would just speak to me in an audible voice, then I would obey him. (laughs) Sure didn't work for the Hebrews, did it? And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Oh, let's party hardy, they said. The Hebrew verb translated play suggests sexual promiscuity. The camp of Israel was transformed into a drunken orgy. And the Lord said to Moses, Get down, go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Notice God calls them your people, Moses, that you brought out of the land of Egypt. God is so ashamed of Israel. Moses, these are your people. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them less than two months. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make for you a great nation. Now this is really an incredible offer to Moses. God is saying, I'm going to wipe out these Hebrews, Moses, and I'm going to start over with you. And I'm going to make you a nation. No doubt God is frustrated here. I think God is actually experiencing the frustrations of a parent. There are times when all parents get frustrated with their kids. They say weird things. They threaten to ship them off to China and other things, lock them in a closet and things like that. That doesn't mean that they will. It means that they could. Parents are just being honest about their feelings. Feelings that they never really act on. And here, I don't believe that God's promises to Israel were ever in jeopardy. I think the real issue here is not God's faithfulness. I think this is a test of Moses' faithfulness. You see, if Moses had any inkling of selfish ambition, he would have taken God up on his offer. But I believe God is testing Moses. He's testing his love for the people that he has chosen Moses to lead. You know, the best leaders are lovers. You know, folks follow a pastor or a leader if they know he loves them. And Moses is about to prove his love for the children of Israel once and for all. Verse 11, Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? God, why cause your enemies to question your love and your mercy? Moses is concerned about God's reputation. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Now Moses knew that God's covenant with the Hebrews was based on God's grace, not on Israel's goodness. God knew that. That he had made this promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Israel, long before these Hebrews had ever crossed out of Egypt into the wilderness. The people at the base of Mount Sinai, despite their sin, was still the descendants of Abraham and still heir to these promises. Moses is saying, "For your promises' sake, preserve these people, forgive these people." And verse fourteen tells us how God responds. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. In other words, God changed his mind. Can God do that? If God relents, how does that impact the doctrine of God's sovereignty? Well, I'm going to let you and the theologians figure that out. Here's all I know. Verse 14 says that God changed his course of action in response to Moses' prayer. Apparently, God is immutable, not immobile. His nature never changes, but God will alter his course, which to me is a powerful encouragement to pray. You see, a prayer born of love, a prayer prayed with passion, based on God's grace and on God's faithfulness, will influence God. God promises us it will. It's been said prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Our sovereign, supreme, all-knowing God somehow makes His plans vulnerable to our petitions. And he invites us to participate in his work through prayer. God baits us, you could say, to get involved in his plans by allowing our puny prayers to sway his mighty movements. What a privilege, what an honor it is to pray. I hope you'll pray tonight. Verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Imagine, tablets pinned with the very finger of God. If we had them today, we would do a handwriting analysis on them. And we would conclude that they were written by a person full of love. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the noise of, of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he became near, came near to the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. And so Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And literally here, Moses becomes the first person in history to break all of the Ten Commandments at one time. In a rage, he hurls the tablets to the rocks and they smash into pieces. You know, apparently, anger was a problem that Moses had to deal with most of his life. You know, the Bible says he was the meekest man on the earth. But he also had a anger problem. You know he got angry earlier and he killed an Egyptian. Here he gets angry and he smashes these tablets. Later he's going to get angry and he's going to strike a rock and it's going to cost him entrance into the land of Canaan. Verse 20. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire and ground it to powder, gold dust. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. He mixes the gold dust with water and he makes the Hebrews drink. This is sort of Alka-Seltzer in reverse. He wants their rebellion and their sinfulness to make them sick at their stomach. Kind of like those drugs you take so that if you drink alcohol, you'll end up getting violently nauseous. Now he wants their sinfulness to make them sick at his, their stomach. That's how God feels when, when we sin. It'll help them realize God's attitude towards sin. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Aaron, how could you have strayed this far? You know, on the mountaintop, God told Moses that Aaron was to be a priest, that he was to lead Israel in worship. And yet at the bottom of the mountain, he's the one who's made this idol. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. Oh, the people made me do it. He blames Israel. He tries to pass the buck. Listen to what he says next. It's such a flimsy excuse, it's humorous. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, "Whoever has any gold, let them break it off." Notice this. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and out this and this calf came out. Out popped this calf. Like I don't know how it happened. I just threw the gold into the fire, and presto, this calf came out. No, no mention of his engraving tool. Remember, no mention of his efforts at. Fashioning a calf? Aaron is trying to duck all responsibility. Verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them, to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp, and he said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Moses draws a line in the sand. He calls for the people to choose sides, and the Levites kill everyone who opposes the Lord. And so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Evidently, the idolatry had swept through the whole camp, but apparently there were 3,000 people who, when given the opportunity, refused to repent, who refused to come over to the Lord's side. They were the ones who died. You know, it's ironic that in the New Testament, when the grace of God is poured out at Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. When the law of God is given, 3,000 people die. That's the difference between grace and law. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. You know, the Levites had learned an important lesson, that when you stand for the Lord, it often puts you in opposition with the people you love. We all have to learn that lesson. You know, imagine their agony. They had to draw swords against their own relatives. And it's still tough today whenever our faith divides our family. Verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Moses, do you realize what you're saying? This is mind-boggling to me. Moses is saying, I'm willing to go to hell if it means these Hebrews will go to heaven. Now guys, i got to be honest. I love our congregation a lot. I love you an awful lot. And there's a lot that I would do to show you God's love. But I'm not about to risk eternity in the smoking section for any of you. I'm sorry. I would suffer to show you God's love in a lot of ways, but to go to hell? Sorry. Moses is demonstrating extraordinary love. It's difficult for us to even begin to grasp the depth of love that Moses possessed. But even though I can't say that I have mimicked Moses' love, I can say that I am moved by Moses' love. And when I look at Moses' love, it motivates me to have a greater love for you and for particularly those who are lost and who are without Christ. Do you realize that every 10 seconds, 15 people exit this world? Each hour across the globe, in other words, by the time this Bible study will be over, 5,417 people will have entered eternity to meet their maker. Add to that an alarming statistic. That 95% of Christians go their whole life and never lead a single person to Jesus. Now you understand the seriousness of the situation. God isn't asking us tonight to go to hell for someone, He's just asking us to get down on our knees and pray for a friend's salvation. He's just asking us to go across the street to share the gospel with a neighbor. He's just asking us to dig into our pocket and give a little money to the missionary. Do we love the lost? Have we forgotten that we once were members in the same fraternity? Well, the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Only Jesus was sinless and therefore could die in the place of another person. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit... For punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sins. Their lives will be spared, but Israel will not go unpunished. God disciplines those He loves. And so the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now God renews His promise to these people. He renews His promise of protection and guidance, but He imposes a temporary distancing. God had intended to dwell among these people as they made their way to the promised land. The glory of God was going to be visible in the camp, but now, but not now, not after this sin, not after this idolatry. Now, until the tabernacle is constructed, God is going to dwell outside the camp of Israel. We'll see the arrangement he makes in a minute. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. This was not a time to be joyous and to wear your party hats and your fun clothes and your fancy jewelry, all your ornaments. This was a time to mourn for your sin. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked or stubborn people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. You know, it's one thing to sin. It's another thing to, to get happy over it. You know, to adorn yourself and make fun of it and make sport of it. He says, strip yourself of your ornaments. You've sinned. Folks seeking God for revival, folks really wanting victory, aren't just interested in thrills and good times and spiritual gifts, ornaments, if you will. No, they will strip themselves of their ornaments. They will strip themselves of trivial pursuits and they will be sorry for their sin. They'll mourn over their sin. They'll develop a truly repentant heart. We're told in verse 7, So Moses took his tent, and he pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. Now remember, the Tabernacle of Meeting is not the tabernacle, not the tent that Moses was to build, that we studied last week, that was to be the center of their worship. This was a makeshift place. Moses' tent outside of the camp. The tabernacle doesn't exist just yet. This was an interim home for God's glory. Outside the camp, it would serve until Moses could gather the materials to build the tabernacle that had been shown him on top of the mountain. And so it was, whenever Moses went out of the tabernacle, that all the people rose. And each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. This became quite a spectator thing. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. Whenever Moses went in to meet with God, the people were in awe. that This man could go in and meet with a holy God. I mean this was the faithless nation that had bowed to a golden calf and now they marvel at the intimacy that Moses has with the Almighty. And so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This expression face to face doesn't mean that Moses literally gazed into God's face that he looked into God's face eyeball to eyeball. This is figurative language. It means that he spoke freely, he spoke candidly with God as two friends would talk together. I hope you know this is the kind of friendship we can have with God now through Jesus Christ. God has become our friend through Christ Jesus. We can have the same kind of intimacy, this face-to-face conversation with God on a daily basis and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. And of course, the Roman Catholics are quick to point out that Joshua's father's name was Nun. He was not the son of a nun. That would create a lot of problems. It's supposed to be a joke, but nobody laughed. But this is an important insight, especially to Joshua. Here is why Joshua will later be chosen as Moses' successor. Because Joshua loved to hang out in God's presence. He longed for the glory of God that had been revealed to Moses. And and he just wanted to be around the glory, hoping some of the anointing would rub off on him. you got to love Joshua. Verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. Notice God's grace is not an end in itself. God's grace entitles us to God's blessing. Grace brings with it the knowledge of God, an awareness of God's presence, God's favor, and God's gifts. Guys, don't just be content with God's grace. Use it to know the God of that grace. He says, and consider that this nation is your people. Moses is concerned about God withdrawing from the camp. He's concerned about God residing in this tent outside the camp. He says, God, remember, this nation is your people. But God assures Moses in verse 14, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses makes a beautiful statement to God in verse 15. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Isn't that beautiful? Moses is basically saying, God, I'd rather die in the desert with you then I would enter into a land of blessing without you. God, if you don't go with us, just leave us right here. We want to be with you. You remember when God told Moses to go to Egypt in the first place? Remember Moses balked? He said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And then God answered him, I will certainly be with you. And at the time, God's presence wasn't enough for Moses. In fact, you remember, he came back with more excuses. But now he's learned that if God is with you, you have all you really need. If Moses is assured of God's presence, he knows that nothing is impossible. Now you know why it meant so much to the disciples when Jesus told them just before he ascended into heaven, Lo, I am with you always. Because if God is with us, who can be against us? And now we know... Why God's promise to us is so important. Hebrews 13 verse 5 tells us, He says, God says to every believer, I will never leave you or forsake you. We have it all when we have the promise of God's presence. Well, verse 16 tells us, For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And I like this. Some nations were known for their geographic advantages. They were situated near a river or a mountain or the like. Some people were known for their natural resources or their military might. Some nations were known for their political systems. You know, the the, the laws of Rome or their intellectual achievements the you know the great minds of Greece but one thing set Israel apart Israel basically had one distinction and that was this the presence of God dwelt among the Hebrews that's what made them special that's what made them different and i believe this is also The distinctive characteristic of the Christian. Guys, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who is born of God, the Spirit of God dwells in him. This is what sets us apart from others. This is what makes us special and unique, that the Spirit of God dwells in us. Verse 17 says, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses said, and you gotta love this, please show me your glory. God promises Moses his presence, but notice, Moses isn't content with just an awareness of God's presence. Moses wants all that grace entitles him to receive. Moses wants to see the full blaze of God's magnificent glory. Exodus 33 verse 18 to me expresses the desire of every heart that truly hungers for God. Moses has talked to God as a man talks to a friend. But he's no longer just content with the warmth of God's presence. Now he wants to see God unveiled and in full regalia. How content have you become in your relationship with God? Yes, you sense God's presence. Yes, God dwells within you. But when was the last time you asked God for more? When was the last time you did something very bold and very daring and you said to God, please, Lord, show me your glory? Here's an old quote that challenges me every time I read it. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a man of a different color or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Are you content with just $3 worth of God? Or do you want all that grace entitles you to receive? Tonight, I dare you to get down on your knees when you go home and cry out to God and say, Please show me your glory. Well, God answers Moses in verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In response to Moses' request to see his glory, God gives to Moses his name. You see, in Bible times, a person's name revealed their nature. And thus, God's name reveals his glory. And God labels Himself here gracious and compassionate. In essence, God's glory is seen clearest in His grace. His glory is bound up in His compassion. Of the light that shines from God's throne, the brightest and the hottest rays are those that reveal His love for us. You see His grace and you have seen His glory. Well, God is about to answer Moses' request and show, show him his glory. But God tells him in verse 20, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. In other words, the full burst of God's unshielded, undiluted grace would be too much for a mortal man to handle. If you or I were to literally, with our physical eyes, see the glory of God, we would be burned to a crisp. Our naked eye... Could not handle it. We would be disintegrated. We would be turned into dust. And so the Lord designs some personal protection for Moses. Verse 21. And the Lord said, here is a place by me. And you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Literally in the fissure or in the crack here in between the rock. And then he says, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And notice the double protection. The rock of God and the hand of God. And this rock that overshadowed Moses, I have no doubt points to a future rock, Jesus Christ. For catch this, it is in Christ that we are perfectly positioned to behold the glory of God. It's in Christ. It's from that vantage point. Then and only then can we see God's glory. Augustus Toplody understood this imagery and he drew on it when he wrote his famous hymn, Rock of Ages, a cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Well, God says to Moses in verse 23, Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face, you shall not be seen. What a phenomenal experience it must have been. A full frontal view of God would have been lethal. But God revealed to Moses as much as Moses could handle. Moses knew that, he knew that God knew that there's no way Moses could handle that full frontal view. And so what did he do? He put his hand over him, kept him in the rock, and he allowed him to see his backside when he passed by. And on that day, Moses knew God in a way that no one else would until a few disciples would meet God walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Guys, no matter how long you've been a Christian, No matter the extent of your past encounters with God, there is more of Him for you to experience than what you've received. God wants to excite you. God wants to blow your mind. God wants you to see a bit of His backside. All He's waiting on is for you to get on your knees and ask, please, show me your glory. I Chapter 34, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain, Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. The mountain was to be off limits. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And here is God's name. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. What a glorious name that is. God is merciful. God is love. But notice, His love doesn't ignore sin. For God also is by no means clearing the guilty. He is visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. In other words, some sin has consequences that are passed down to succeeding generations. And God doesn't shelter our kids from the results of our sin. If you want to pass on a corrupt legacy to your kids, God will let you. This past week I went to see one of Mac's roller hockey games, and I couldn't believe it. As I was walking into the roller hockey rink, I was walking by the sidewalk, kind of out behind the rink, and there I passed by a high school roller hockey player smoking a cigarette with his dad. The kid was probably 15 years old, and I wondered, what in the world is this father thinking? Is he trying to act cool by his permissiveness? I'm sorry. To me, there is nothing cool about leaving a legacy of bad habits to your kids. There are some sins that the result of that sin, your kids pick up on it. They're influenced by it. And God doesn't stop it. Verse 8 says, So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth. And by the way, I watched that kid during the game. And he barely had enough breath to stay on the court for about 30 seconds at a time. No wonder. Verse 8. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Moses is inviting God to rejoin the camp. To, to come back from the tabernacle of meeting into the center of the camp, and God said, "Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among you whom are, all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. Catch this, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And and you know, I believe that's a word from God to us tonight. God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your family. God has a plan for this church. And I believe God would say to us tonight, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God does want to do awesome things in our lives, and yet in return, Israel has to maintain their end of the deal. And for the sake of time, let me summarize for you the next few verses. The verses that sort of lay out the nation's responsibility. Verses 11 through 17. Israel is told to tear down the pagan altars in the land. For if they associate with idolaters, they'll end up worshiping idols. Guys, one compromise leads to another. Become unequally equally yoked with an unbeliever. And it will cause you problems. Verses 18 through 25 tells us that Israel is to keep the three major feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which uh, came the seven days after Passover. The Feast of Weeks. Both those feasts were in the springtime, and in the fall, the Feast of Ingathering. Then in verses 19 and 20, they were to dedicate their firstborn to the Lord. Then verse 26 tells us, The first of the firstfruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. This was their tithe. The first and the best belong to the Lord. And they were to give it to Him. And then He says, And you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the second time this is mentioned. And if you want to learn more about it, I'll refer you back to Exodus 23, verse 19, and my comments there. Verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words... For according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Notice, God made his covenant with Israel according to the tenor or the spirit or the intent of these words. Now, if you'll fast forward to the time of Christ, you'll remember a sect of Jews known as the Pharisees. Who became experts at keeping the letter of the law and yet violating its intent? Understand, God never approved of a wooden, mechanical, heartless interpretation of the law. The law was always spiritual, it was always intended as an expression of love. When God made this covenant, He made it according to the tenor, according to the spirit and intent of these words. You know under the old covenant God would do awesome things but the people had to obey and this was the flaw with the law. It depended on man's performance. You see the law required a tag-team righteousness. It was God's part and man's part (laughs) and because man had a part The old covenant was doomed from the very beginning. The genius of the new covenant that we're under is that man's participation is not required for the production of righteousness. The work is done by Christ alone. The law says do. Jesus says done. And our part is to simply look on his finished work and have faith. That's why I'm a new covenant believer. It all rests on God. Well, verse 28 tells us, So Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Here's another 40 days and 40 nights. And this time he fasted. Both bread and water. Now, a person can live 40 days without bread. I mean, they do that on survivors. But you can't live 40 days without water. That's impossible. This was obviously a supernatural, one-of-a-kind encounter with God that Moses experienced. There needs to be a disclaimer here. Please don't try this at home. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. God rewrote the tablets that Moses had broken. Verse 29. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Moses had seen God's glory and when he came down from the mountain it continued to radiate from his face. Call it the divine shine. Call it the mo Glow. It was a spiritual sunburn. An S-O-N burn, I might add. Understand, the human spirit is like a bounty paper towel. You know they used to call those bounty paper towels the quicker picker uppers? The human spirit is highly absorbent. If you soak it in a solution, it ends up saturated. You know, this is true of us. The more time we spend soaking in God's love and bathing in God's word and resting in God's presence, the more we spend beholding His glory, soaking it in, the more saturated we become with Him. It's been said, there is still in the countenances of God's most advanced servants, a brightness, a gladness, a beaming radiance, which comes only from long communion with the Lord. I believe that's true. God wants you and I to be like a lampshade. He wants to reveal in our hearts His glory, then let that glory shine through our lives to others. Remember in Acts chapter 6, It was said of Stephen that he had a face as the face of an angel. He too had that divine shine, that mo glow. How about you? Does your life shine with the love and light and glory of God? Do you spend so much time in God's presence that you radiate His glory and grace? I hope you do. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. But notice... And they were afraid to come near him. You see, living under the law caused feelings of unworthiness. Israel knew that it could never meet the law's demands. Trying to keep the law caused condemnation and therefore the fear of God's glory. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And that veil symbolized the separation from God that the people experienced under the law. Verse 34. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. You know, Apparently the glow the sort of dissipated after a time, you know, which sort of happened to the law as well. The glory dissipated, it it diminished. You know, 2 Corinthians 3 is a great commentary on this passage. I encourage you, when you get home, read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There Paul says that the veil Moses used to cover God's glory symbolized Israel's condition under the old covenant. They felt unworthy of God. And thus, like Moses, they kept themselves hidden. It kept the glory hidden. It was hidden from them. But Paul says something interesting. He says, at the very moment that one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, when our sin is forgiven by Jesus, this veil is lifted. These feelings of unworthiness that drove the people away from God, that caused the people to fear His glory, these feelings of unworthiness are immediately lifted. They vanish. A person who receives the righteousness of Christ knows he is as worthy as he can get. She is as worthy as she can get. And that there's no longer any fear. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And there we have Exodus chapters 32 through 34. Next time, it'll be a few weeks.